it's so convincing. The physiologic feeling that we all have when we're anxious, our stomachs feel tight. We might have to go to the bathroom. We might feel jittery. We might have brain fog. We might uh, just not feel on top of our game or, or strong. And those are very convincing feelings to tell us we need to fight or flee. From Washington, D.C., this is The Tightrope. I'm your host, Dan Smolin. On this episode, guest Charles Glassman, M.D., returns to discuss brain drain, his study of how discordant emotions negatively impact our physical health. While board certified to practice internal medicine, Dr. Glassman treats his patients holistically by addressing their physical, emotional, and spiritual health. And while listening carefully to his patients, he has determined that we often try unsuccessfully to treat physical illness through too much self-medication and prescription drugs, over-reliance on specialists, and most of all, not mitigating our mental and emotional pain. Dr. Glassman believes that by controlling brain drain, we may all lead healthier and more productive lives. We spoke with him in June 2018 at his offices in Pomona, New York. So the title of your book is Brain Drain. What is brain drain and why are so many of us suffering from it? As a physician, I had a, a patients come to me all the time who just don't feel as though they can take it anymore, that they can go on with their life, that they can go on with their illnesses. And they often ask me, what they can do to get back on the right track. And about 10 years ago, I started to be real proactive with that question. And I started writing emails. And those emails that I would write to them were motivational, trying to get them to look into themselves. But I found as I was trying to get them to look into them, their selves, I was had to look into myself to see what sabotages me, mm -hmm. what derails me, what gets me anxious. And what I found out, it's what I call brain drain. And brain drain is this primitive part of us, this animalistic part of us, which causes us to react to anything it senses as danger by fight or flight. And the more it senses danger and the more it reacts with fight or flight, the more it drains us, the more it really sops our energy, our motivation, and it stands in the way of who we truly are and what we truly can become. So you often refer to the automatic brain. Some people call that autonomic. But the automatic brain is where certain chemicals course through the veins and they create fight or flight responses. You either run from whatever's bothering you or you run towards it to deal with it. Yeah. And I guess we respond to these things in sudden instances, a sudden car crash that we're involved in, mm -hmm. a child falling off a chair and having to go grab her. And that turns our brains to 11, I guess, right? To use a movie metaphor. Yeah, yeah. So over time, if we have a lot of those kinds of experiences, what happens to critical thinking? And then what happens to health? What happens to the body systems with all that automatic brain activity? Yeah, so those experiences that you described are the, are the obvious ones. Those are the ones that when we see a police officer in our rear view mirror, that feeling that we get, it's the feeling that I got, what got me started thinking so uh, viscerally about this reaction 
was when I started getting what people call white coat syndrome. When I was a medical student and studying for my boards, I felt my pulse skip a beat. Mm. And my roommate took my blood pressure and it was 130 over 80, which really isn't that high. But I was a second year medical student. And the year before, when we took our blood pressures, mine was 120 over 80. But now I felt my heart skip a beat. I'm studying about heart attacks in the boards. My blood pressure now is a whopping 130 over 80. I must be really sick. So my, I, you know, my loving parents, uh, I call them, which I shouldn't have done. And of course, they want me to come home to see their doctor who freaked me out with his very serious look. And then from then on, I ended up with this fight or flight response to that fear of illness, which was a irrational fear. So what happens is those obvious experiences that you described, we don't get those all the time, but what we do get are those situations like me going to a doctor or someone cutting us off on the road in front road rage, somebody cutting in front of us in the supermarket or feeling that our spouse is disrespecting us or our boss is disrespecting us or we're in a dead end job or things of that sort, or we are told that our parent is sick or that we're sick and all of the, or, or there's uh, traumas in the world that, that are affecting us. And all of this is kind of the undercurrent and it's the danger that we're, that our brain is detecting. And this automatic brain doesn't think it only reacts. So if it's been programmed that these things are going to be dangerous, it will react with this mini fights or flight, which will kind of continually put out adrenaline which will continually put out cortisol. And over time, what that does is it breaks down body parts because cortisol or or prednisone, the synthetic form that people take, Mm -hmm. is what's called a catabolic steroid. And so we need it in times of stress acutely, but over time, a catabolic means it breaks down as opposed to anabolic steroid like testosterone, like Mm -hmm. the ball players take, might Mm -hmm. take, or not supposed to take, Mm -hmm. but this will break our tissues down. And the more this goes on the undersurface, the undercurrent of our life, the more it's coursing through our veins, as you said, the more destructive nature it could have. Acutely, when we're fighting and fleeing the saber-toothed tiger, we need it. But how many saber-toothed tigers are we really fighting and fleeing in our daily lives? It's those mini ones that are on an ongoing daily basis. So what keeps patients, what keeps all of us from making the kinds of lifestyle changes that will result in fewer autonomic brain flare-ups? Yeah. It's important to understand when it's happening. And the ob- when I say when it's happening, when that brain is being triggered, when brain drain is happening is when our automatic brain is, and as you said, it's some people call it the autonomic nervous system. I call it automatic brain because it is automatic. It's instantaneous. It just happens. And it's so convincing. The physiologic feeling that we all have when we're anxious, our stomachs feel tight. We might have to go to the bathroom. We might feel jittery. We might have brain fog. We might uh, just not feel on top of our game or, or strong. And those are very convincing feelings to tell us we need to fight or flee because we have no place to fight or flee because we're not 
fighting or fleeing a saber-toothed tiger. We're in mm-hmm. ourselves. So in order to make those changes, it's important to recognize it. And it's important not to believe, trust, and take direction from those feelings. Because those physiologic feelings that the automatic brain is putting out and making us are so destructive from where we really need to be that what I recommend is to when you have them, let that be a message that you're actually moving in the right direction because that automatic brain, that danger signal that will be coming a lot of times is coming from the unknown, the uncomfortable, the unexpected, the unfamiliar. That your brain will detect that as danger and it will make you have all those feelings of fight or flight, the jitteriness, the anxiety, the this upset stomach. You're actually moving in the right direction. But if you believe, trust, and take direction from those feelings, I guarantee you, you're going to withdraw. You're going to withdraw from it and you're going to go in and you're not going to take that step out. So it's important to recognize it, but not to believe, trust, or take direction from those feelings that it causes. So some people will try to mitigate this through self-medication, booze, drugs, food, or they may try to do it through their traditional doctor by getting prescribed some formulary. Yeah. What happens when somebody is treating so many illnesses that they're taking four, five, six, seven types of medications a day? Mm -hmm. What happens to our body systems when we're taking so much medication? Yeah. Um, It's dangerous to rely on medications, but sometimes they are needed. Mm -hmm. But I'm not talking about polypharmacy, which is those many medications, because what that does is that can cause us actually to our brain to be triggered. That can cause ill feelings. So for instance, if our blood sugar goes down too low, a lot of us know how that feels. Right. It makes us feel very jittery. Mm -hmm. So there are things that actually can cause different feelings that aren't the automatic brain. But when we rely on medication only, and but let me back up. Sometimes mm-hmm. medication is needed. Okay. So when we have a danger, uh, what, what happens when, when that automatic brain is triggered, it causes us to fight or flee. It's mm-hmm. triggered by something. I call it the big danger, mm-hmm. right? The big danger, whatever it is, a circumstance in life that is very similar to something maybe in childhood, it becomes a big danger. It causes us to fight or flee really bad. That causes our body systems to feel bad. And so our heart to race, us to feel jittery, us to breathe faster, mm-hmm. stomach upset. Well, that causes a signal to the brain that, oh boy, more danger. I'm sick. So what does that brain do when it gets a message of danger? It fights or flees. So when it fights or flees, what do we do? We go to the doctor right. and we say to the doctor, I'm angry, I'm hostile, or I'm nervous, or I'm you know, beating people up. I need you to do something. Well, those emotions send a signal to the brain of danger. I'm losing control, fight or flee. So the doctor then says, okay, we need to give you medication to make that stop. Well, then you say, you're, it says, oh, I'm, 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 I'm not in control, your brain detects. I ha- I'm a loser, I have to go to the doctor, it causes more fight or flight. Well, what does that do? It causes your body systems to feel bad again, so you're given more medication to do this. So you're in this vicious cycle of fight or flight, and that's where the, all the medications come from. Sometimes you just need one medication or not medication necessarily, but a nutritional supplement or a change in the diet that will actually break that progression at the top where the first fight or flight happens. 
But when it goes down that cascade and becomes a vicious cycle, that's when the polypharmacy, when we, when we try to treat everything, and that will cause more problems, and you'll be stuck in this automatic brain, brain drain cycle that is counterproductive to where you really want to be or what you really want to do. Have you had experience with patients of down titrating them on a lot of medications that they are taking to the ones that you feel are essential? And when you've done that, have you had it? Could you describe perhaps how they changed? Yes. Well, it's a freeing feeling. Okay. So psychologically, it's very freeing because they realize that they have more control than they ever thought they had because they were kind of cycling in this crazy brain drain cycle. So they feel great psychologically, but physiologically also, because so many medications have side effects and they don't even realize that their muscle pain, for instance, is because they're taking a cholesterol medication. I mean, I've had people come to me that were told they needed vascular surgery when all it took was taking them off one of their medications. Wow. So yes, it's, it's, a, it's a very freeing, uh, psychologically, but physiologically, getting rid of side effects that they thought were part of their life. You know, in an earlier segment, you talked about how you thought about going into a specialty. And when you and I were young, we went to a pediatrician. It was a very right. famous one in New Haven, Morris Wessel. Everybody oh, yeah. went, to him. went to him. And he was like, more, he was like Marcus Welby. He treated yeah. the family. He knew more about the family than the family probably did about the family. Mm-hmm. But as we got older, and as I've gotten older, I, I see more specialists. And I think that the concern that I have getting older is that, do I now have to be the, the repository of information on everything I'm taking? Luckily, I don't take very much. Yeah. But I know people that are taking eight or nine medications a day. Yeah. And I worry that specialists don't have the familiarity or the sensitivity to know, uh, I guess they call them contraindications. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the human body is so complex and medicine as a whole is such a complex topic that there's something very attractive at just honing in and becoming an expert on just one facet of it. Mm. The challenge or the problem really with that is when you hone in on one part of the body, you're really looking at it with blinders. And the human body is complex and it's very interconnected and nothing works in a vacuum. No body system is in a vacuum. And so when you are just focusing on that one specialty, you don't consider the totality of the person and the totality of the body. And it also causes one to kind of draw or or to, you you need to do things to feed your, your specialty, to feed your practice. So it's an instinct that we have for survival for our specialty to do more testing. And I'll use an example of pain management. Pain management is one of the fastest growing specialties because we're getting older, we have pain, everybody. I mean, you take an X-ray of anyone 40 or older of their back and they're gonna show degenerative changes. And you're gonna talk to anyone over the age of 50 and they're gonna say, yeah, my back hurts, I wake up, my back's a little sore, whatever. Now we have pain management. So what does pain management do? They do procedures. Mm-hmm. They inject people with cortisone, which is that, that, that catabolic steroid I talked about earlier, with the cortisone, with lidocaine, or give them opioids. They're not gonna cure the problem, but what they're gonna do is they're gonna feed their specialty because they're gonna make 
a lot of money, realistically, that's what's going to happen when they do those procedures. And they, they're Band-Aid procedures. And then you talk about people doing surgeries on age-related back changes, and they're not going to get a lot of people better. In fact, 50% of those kind of surgeries fail. But since you have those specialties, and since doctors are going, look, they have mortgages. Right. They have families to feed. So if they focus on that, and I'm not trying to beat up on, on those specialists, but I'm trying to give the listeners a perspective on how sometimes you have to be your own advocate or find a doctor who can advocate for you to give some broader perspective on what you're being recommended by a particular specialist who's looking at it just through their myopic right. lens. So in an earlier segment, you mentioned you attended Hobart College, which is in the upper tier of central New York. I had a recent opportunity to tour around the area and the person driving me from point A to point B talked about the opioid crisis in central New York. I'm not going to ask you what you think we need to do to, to get us out of that, but, yeah. but I'm wondering if you've given any thought to alternatives to it, and in particular, cannabis. Mm-hmm. Do you have an opinion on cannabis, and do you think or not think it holds promise as a potential alternative pain mitigator? It's just like any other medication, if right. you will. I mean, it has medicinal properties. It's not synthetic, although the, the CBD oil and the THC is extracted. So it's a lot different from smoking a joint right. or taking bong hits. Right. You could actually prepare very safe preparations, which are non-addicting and are not the type that is going are, are for recreational use. See, I think the, the recreational use of marijuana in younger people can be a gateway drug. But when you're talking about medicinal uh, cannabis, it is definitely an alternative. So I do feel strongly about that. I think it's very safe, it's non-addicting, and it's not going to be a gateway drug like these opioids to so many others. And certainly it's not lethal. So I, I think it can be very helpful. I don't think it's obviously it's more of a larger issue what's driving people to treat pain with that and understanding. And again, it, it does take a holistic viewpoint of understanding what's causing pain in someone's body. Is it physical totally, or is there emotional aspect to that pain? So that's another whole other area that needs to be explored that has been explored by some doctors like John Sarno, for instance. So we talk about physical pain. We also talk about things like emotional responses. And I think most of us are either unaware of what triggers us. And oftentimes the biggest thing is a grudge. It's something that just, I can't get that out of my head. Mm -hmm. And in one of the synagogues in New York City, there was Mm -hmm. a sign that said, don't let people live rent-free in your head. (laughs) And I love that saying because we all do it. Yeah. So how do we stop getting people to live rent-free in our heads? Yeah. And it's like, okay, so why is Dan Smolin asking Charles Glassman, MD, about this? I'm not a psychiatrist. Right. I'm not a a psychologist. I'm not what I... I mean, I'm a medical doctor, I'm an internist, but it's important. Why is it important? Because these are the things that get people sick. Mm. And my goal as a doctor is to be a holistic doctor, is to be concerned about a person as a whole, body, mind, and spirit. And one of the biggest contributors to ill health is holding a grudge. 
There's a saying that I think uh, was Wayne Dyer who said, you can't be responsible for what people think about you. And certainly people have done us wrong. For many people, our parents have done us wrong. I have people tell me how their parents have beaten the crap out of them when mm -hmm. they were younger, you know, and who have emotional, have physical, sexual abuse. And so there are many people who have been, quote, done wrong by other people. Holding on to that and not forgiving does allow them to live rent-free in your head because they're always with you. So what is it now? People say, well, if someone did that to me, why should I forgive them? Well, you forgive them so you can move on. You're not forgiving them because you're giving them a free pass. There is something called karma. It really is true right. because it's not that I believe they're going to be punished by something outside of themselves. They don't need somebody outside of them or something outside of themselves to punish them. They will be punished. And you may not think it because you may be looking on the outside and seeing, oh, they seem to be having a great life. They're living it up. They're living and here you are miserable. Well, the past is the past. Mm -hmm. And to forgive doesn't mean you need to forget. But what you need to do is try to find some meaning in that awful experience. So if you can extract some meaning or derive some purpose from that experience, then that is the way that you can forgive but not forget. So you're not forgetting because you're using that material, using it as material. You're using it. You're using that material so you can grow. Maybe you could have your own podcast. Yeah. Maybe you can write your own novel. Maybe you could be your own motivational speaker. Or maybe you can help other people who have been in the same and, and help them find meaning and purpose in their life. That's how you get them out of your head. You evict them. You evict them right. by turning to your own life and elevating your own life by finding purpose in your own life using that material. And oftentimes it's because we cannot see. We see what we see but we don't see what we, we, we don't know what we don't see. Absolutely. And so the case of a person that we encountered some time ago who was very coarse in her manner with us and we didn't understand why and she's not picking up our cues and so forth. And as we opened our hearts a little bit and discovered this person was dealing with a medical crisis in her yes. family, a young child who, who had a, a serious medical situation. Mm-hmm. And while that didn't solve the problem, it took some of the sting out of it. And we saw this person not as an adversary, but somebody who was also suffering. Absolutely. And we have to, I guess we have to find ways of doing that. And maybe that will make the process a little easier to forgive and to evict the person from our heads. That's the only way you can do it. The only way you can do it is by looking into yourself, by elevating yourself, by walking your path. And you can use that material. Hey, you know, it's bad stuff. But anyone who did anything bad to you was never about you. And that's also one thing that I think is very important for people to understand. It doesn't give them a free pass. But I know that most abusers were the victims of abuse themselves. And that can open up some compassion. Again, it doesn't give them a free pass. But it allows you to go on with your life because you know that you don't want to continue that legacy. You want to break it, and that's how you're a victim. So here on the Tightrope Podcast, we work to help others, uh, our listeners rather, uh, cross a metaphorical canyon. Mm. The canyon from 
this place that I'm in where I'm miserable and the job sucks and I come home and I'm stressed and I sleep all weekend and then I'm back out at Monday and it just feels like Fred Flintstone at the, <laughs> at the bedrock quarry. Right. How in your kind of work would you counsel somebody to what we call walk the tightrope? Go from one part of the Grand Canyon to the other side where the good stuff is, where one might feel liberated, have more purpose, more meaning in their lives feel some sense of profound experience. Mm -hmm. What kinds of steps might our listeners take? Yes, the first step is don't quit your day job. No matter how much you hate it, no matter how much you feel it, it drains you, do not quit your day job yet. Understand that you have particular gifts, talents, and skills. Acknowledge that. Then every day, look for those daily coincidences that I like to call daily magic. Because those daily coincidences start to give you some, it starts to reinforce some faith that there's something greater than just your measly existence, which you envision yourself in. So what kind of daily magical things have happened to me? I was driving home from New Haven after visiting my folks a couple months ago, and we stop at a rest stop. Look in, I, I, I was a little tired, so I was going for a Diet Coke. Coke has this thing where they put people's names on the bottles now. My wife and I get to the refrigerator and staring us right in the face are two Coke bottles. The names on the Coke bottles are Jeremy and Zachary. All right, so so what? Well, Jeremy and Zachary are the names of my sons. Now, of all the names that could be there, of all of the timing for that. And there was no Jeremy or Zachary behind those. So it wasn't like they had a long stack of those names. Mm -hmm. So what would the person unpacking those bottles, what would the person packing them, everything had to be in synergy. So the serendipity of that occasion, right. it the skies didn't open. Nobody said that this was some religious experience. Right. But that little coincidence said to me something. It, it said that I'm connected to something larger. So when people go through their lives, they're in this miserable existence that they seek, that they see in their, in their career. They want to change. Whatever you're doing in your job, don't leave it. Just start doing it the best you can with the gifts and talents you have. Recognize those gifts and talents. You may want to write them down, at least one or two. Then look for those individual, beautiful coincidences that happen in your daily life. And then start thinking about what sort of meaning can you derive in your daily life right now? And what do you see yourself maybe pursuing in the future? Something that's purposeful, that's meaningful, that coincides with your particular gifts and talents. And then you start exploring that. And then you understand my uh, formula of profit, my profit formula, mm -hmm. which is purpose plus passion plus perseverance plus action in parentheses for you math majors out there, mm -hmm. multiplied by the number of people who will benefit from your goods and services, that will translate into a monetary financial profit. Applying that formula, you can see how that will get you across that canyon. Mm -hmm. Walk the tightrope, because it is a little bit of a tightrope as you're making that transition, because there will be a time when you're actually going to have to leave that job and it may not be quite at the time when you've, you've gotten to that profit, but you see that it is in process because you are 
giving, you are providing goods and services that one, two, ten thousand, a million people might need to benefit from, and you're you're doing that. Now we've been there. A lot of companies do that and provide goods and services that really aren't so good for us, and they do derive a monetary profit. But you want to do that by applying that formula of purpose, passion, perseverance. Mm-hmm. By doing that, you will be satisfied, and it will be a, a change and a transition worth doing. Dr. Charles Glassman, this has been an amazing experience, and thank you so much for walking the tightrope with us. I have one more question for you. Yes. So in your many years of treating patients, you've learned a lot, and you've learned a lot from your patients. So what have they taught you, and how have you applied that to your own life? They taught me to, one, vulnerability can be a very great asset. That is one lesson I've learned. The other lesson was how the process all began. When I started to give advice, I realized I couldn't just do that. I had to walk the walk. I had to walk the tightrope. Right. And I had to walk the tightrope by looking into myself. Right. And I needed to do that. And that really made me a better person, a better father, husband, and a better doctor. Well, thank you so much. Where would our listeners find you on the web? www.charlesglassmanmd.com, charlesglassmanmd, like medicaldoctor.com. There, that's my website. My blog is on there. There's information about me. Also, my free ebook, uh, 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 Fake News Stories by Your Brain. It's also my brain, too, but, but Fake News Stories by Your Brain. Uh, you can download that and no strings attached. It's, I think you'll get some good information and try to under, and start understanding this automatic brain that I talk so much about. Well, this has been really fun and very, very interesting. And I hope you'll be back on our podcast sometime soon. Dan, have me back anytime. I'd love to. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks again to our guest, Dr. Charles Glassman, for walking the tightrope with us. Links to his website and other resources are available on our website at dansmullen.com. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts by keywording The Tightrope with Dan Smolin. And if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and post your comments like listener USNA67 who writes that you're making me a better leader and manager. Wow. Thank you, USNA67. Don't forget to subscribe to our mailing list and please suggest topics that you believe we should tackle in future episodes by writing us at info at dansmolin.com. From Washington, D.C., this is The Tightrope. I'm Dan Smolin, and do remember this, our best days lie ahead. Have a great and successful week, everyone.